Hello, welcome to Bible Marathon and it's dinner time. The word of God we believe is the best sustenance for the spirit, which is why we are taking our time to study and dine on the word of God. So, join us at the table for word dinner. Yeah, this is this what is happening right now is literally what we call or what Paul said, you know, in when I was talking to Timothy, he said, preach the word in season and out of season. <laughs> That's what's happening right now because today has been a very, very hectic day, very weird day because of a lot of the planning that we are we're undergoing for the new church plant. Like I'm on the move right now. So but I, I still want to be able to teach the word and be what the scripture says so um i trust god through this to be to to have an amazing time with us and i love the testimonies i heard thanks for sharing those um so let's jump in right away all right father in the name of the lord jesus as we continue to study the word in the letter written to the philippians lord we are inspired we're instructed and the word of god bears fruit in our lives in jesus mighty name amen all right so if you hear a map just ignore it we're trying to find a way to our destination okay so we've been studying on philippians and um, the foundational idea in philippians is that paul an apostle of jesus christ is being actively persecuted in fact he's in prison and he's writing a letter to these people in philippi to say hey you guys are very dear to my heart and you're still on my heart. And I want you to have that same behavior, not just to me, but to each other. That's kind of like the crux of his letter to let them know that, hey, we go through difficult times. Persecution is expected. Believer is not, is not exempted from persecution or from suffering or from struggle. But in spite of the struggle, we have victory. In spite of the struggle, we have God's guidance, right? And that's the whole concept in the book of Philippians. In fact, if you want to understand the theme, you can get it in a, in a summary sentence in a, almost every single chapter. The, the summary idea is always be full of joy, like rejoice. Yes, this is happening to you, but rejoice. Yes, things are not going your way, rejoice. Yes, you're in prison, rejoice. Yes, you have um, serious debt, rejoice. You are hungry, rejoice. Like that is the idea Paul is trying to communicate. And the only reason this is possible is by the Spirit of God, which he emphasizes in the second chapter. So let's get back into it and see where we stopped last time. We talked about um, God's care in just showing us his love and explain that love in a sacrificial way. So Jesus Christ takes on the form of a man, which the Bible describes as humility. First of all, it is humility that God himself should sit on a throne and behold the heavens. The Bible paints it as humility for God to do that. How much more the Son of God becoming a human being? Like that's mind-blowing, right? So Paul says this is the attitude we need to have. Uh, Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he starts to tell you why you need to think like that. And I remember building that case two weeks ago. How many of you were here when I, I broke down 
Philippians 2, from verse 5, all the way to verse 8. Talking about the kenosis, Jesus Christ leaving his privileges as the Son of God, becoming a human, limiting himself to humanity just for our sake. And that should always cause us to marvel and, you know, exalt, E-X-U-L-T, exalt in God, you know? And we see that on the screen, right? He was the form of God. He did not consider a robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of zero reputation, no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men, meaning he became like us. Now the Bible says, verse 8, he was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. And I explained that he just kept getting worse and worse. He first became a human, not any human, but a human who would be a servant. He didn't come as a king in political power. He came as a spiritual king. He didn't come from, you know, the, the most powerful family. He came from Mary and Joseph, who did not even find a place to give birth to Jesus. Like, they had to be an in. And Jesus grows up in a very, very weird village called Nazareth. That people said, like, can anything good come from there? That's the foundation Jesus gave himself. <laughs> like, who would have made those kind of choices? Only Jesus would. And you, you think that's the end. But he goes further to say, even the death on, of the cross was him subjecting himself further. Look at verse 8. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. That's the worst thing anyone would experience, dying. And Jesus chooses to do that. Why? To show us the extent of his love. To go the extra mile and show, first of all, how much God loves us. And secondly, how we ought to love each other. Because 2 Corinthians 5, 15 says, He died for all, that they which live should no longer live to themselves, but for them who died, but for him who died and rose again. And we're seeing some Korean adverts because... <laughs> Victoria is learning Korean language. All right. So now what do we see again, like we mentioned the last time? Verse 9, it says, and being found, sorry, we talked about verse 8. Verse 9, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. In other words, the obedience of Jesus Christ was rewarded. And this is so this is so significant, guys, that Jesus is and was the son of God. And so he always pleased the father. But yet, even though he was already by nature pleasing to the father, Jesus chooses to obey the will of God. And this is this is so instructive because as a Christian, maybe you, I hope you know this, but I just want to reaffirm this again. You are loved by God. Like when God sees you, he calls you blameless. That's how you are described in Colossians. That's how you are described in Ephesians. Blameless, without reproach. Um, God holy, God is saint. Cry out loud. So that's your status. In Christ, God sees you as righteous. Why does he see us as righteous? Because of what Christ did. Now, Jesus was the only one who was like 
virtually in every respect completely righteous. He did everything God told him to do. Perfectly righteous in acts, indeed in thoughts. So all we have is what we call delegated righteousness. It's the, it's the one that we have because God saw Christ as for having full merit. Like he, he got the A plus because he worked hard for it. You get what I mean? But now us, we just get to benefit from that victory that Christ had. We get to benefit from his status, not only as being the son of God, but as being the one who obeyed God perfectly. So he was the only one that actually met the requirements of the law fully. And then look at what the Bible says in Romans 8. Very important. Jesus obeyed the law fully. He met all the requirements of the law. Christians who just received Christ, we've not met all the requirements of the law. I hope you know that. Like, we haven't in actions, in deeds, in word. Look at verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Look at this. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I, at this point, we've not done anything. Paul is saying, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Like, automatically, because of what Christ did. But this, this is where I was, I'm really going. Verse 3. Look at this. For what the law could not do, what the law could not achieve, in that it was weak through the flesh, meaning whenever the law comes in contact with a human being, it produces bad things. The law is good itself. But when it comes in contact with human sinful flesh, it doesn't achieve anything, even though it's good. So he says, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. How did God do it? What the law could not achieve, which was make us right with him. God did it. How? He said, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. of today, but I want you to get the point here. God did something the law could not achieve by sending his own son to suffer for sin so that sin will be condemned in him and by extension sin has been condemned in us. So because Jesus Christ has sin put upon him and he's punished, sin is dealt with. And so by our association with Christ, by trusting in Christ, we get the benefit of that. Look at verse 14, verse 4. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Oh, wow. So he's saying that God's righteous requirements of the law, he says they are fulfilled in us because of what Christ did. So you see where I'm going with this. The Christian may not be living perfectly right, the Christian may not be hitting all the strokes of the law. You might be making mistakes every day. In fact, you could still be struggling with sin and yet can still be declared to be righteous, that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you. And he tells you that, hey, you need to be aware of this. It's you who, by God's grace and God's spirit, walk in the spirit and not according to the flesh. Praise the name of Jesus. So 
how does this relate to what we are saying in Philippians chapter chapter two? Let's go back and look at this. So Jesus Christ, the Bible says he humbled himself, he died, and that death was in a sense him dying because of the punishment that we deserved, sin. The sin, punishment for sin was put upon him, the Bible says. The chastisement that brought peace to us was upon him. Look at verse 9. So therefore, because of disobedience, because of this, not, not disobedience, because of this obedience, God exalts Jesus. This, this is powerful. So he exalts him and give, gives him a name above every day. Now, someone might be wondering, didn't Jesus already have a name above every name? And the answer to that question is, he did. Jesus has always been the son of God with power, right? But it was manifested when God raised him from the dead. Let me explain what I mean by that. Everything Jesus said could have been taken with a grain of salt. Like Jesus walked on the earth. Just imagine this. Jesus is going around and saying, I'm the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, everybody is listening to him. Crowds come. They listen to his teaching. They live, you know, blessed. Some people say that he is a powerful man. And then he says, destroy this temple, and I will build it up in three days. And everybody's like, is this guy okay? And then he says things like, if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have your part in me. If you don't, you don't have your part in me. And everyone is confused. So on one hand, you are seeing all the miraculous things Jesus is doing. And on the other side, you are seeing some very, very heavy claims that he's making. Like heavy claims. And basically, he was declaring, maybe not exactly with these words, but in every statement he made, that he's God incarnate, like he's God in the flesh. Here's the thing. How do we know it's true? If you were there with Jesus, you would very likely be part of those who doubted. Very likely. Like that's your natural, like when you see comments in, 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 on someone's post and you just realize how many people are just, you know, they're unsavvy, they're not sensitive, they're just wicked. Anything that they see, they just post and say, this people, I knew it, I knew it. I knew they were, they were fake. You know, everybody wants to say something. And sometimes you feel like you may think that like you're so special, that like you won't do those things. But I'm telling you, you very likely, if you were at the time of Jesus, when he was alive, saying some of these things, like, it's my flesh, drink my blood. So you'd have been like, ah, he's vampire now. <laughs> you have, this guy is telling us to drink blood and eat, like, body. That's cannibalism. And, you know, the Bible actually tells us that when Jesus started teaching like this, people left. And then he even told the disciples, like, are you guys going to leave too? And these, those ones were smart. They said, ah, where would we go? You're the one that has much of life, right? Man, this sun is so bright. Can you guys still see and hear me? Oh, this is probably uh, The sun is getting in the way. Yeah. Uh, let me just, don't worry. Don't worry. Just manage it for now, I beg. This is, like I said, preaching in season and out of season. No problem. 
breach the words anywhere we go. All right. So my 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 confusion if I was there would have been why is this man talking about eating flesh, drinking blood? And I'll probably have stopped for me. I'm just being honest. Like when you study the Bible, sometimes try to put yourself in the shoes of the people there. If someone said this to you and said, Hey, this is how you're going to live forever. Would you take it? Would you believe it? Now, people, some people did, and they followed him. Many left him. Now, let's follow, follow the, the, the train of thought. So you go ahead and you realize this man makes another claim that he's going to go, he's going to die, and he's going to come back, and that he's going to prove once and for all to everyone that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, the one who was promised to the Jews that he was going to come and rescue them from tyranny, oppression, and ultimately their spiritual death. And so what happens next? I'm going to do this just because it helps. What happens next? How do we know that Jesus was who he said he was? Who can answer that question? Like, what is the evidence that everything Jesus said was true? He rose up from the dead. He rose up from the dead. So if I make a claim, the proof that my claim is legitimate is that there is something that comes after. If I let me show you something, go to Deuteronomy 18. This is this this is a, this is gonna show you this is gonna show you something very interesting, and it talks a lot about how to to gauge prophecy, and I think this is a powerful um, revelation about prophecy um, and how to judge prophecy. Go to verse 18. All right. No, no, that's actually, I like this. Go up, go up, go up. Go to verse 15. Now, watch this. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your mists. By the way, many scholars would agree that this is talking about Jesus. All right. And so, I mean, Jesus was a mighty prophet. In fact, Islam recognizes Jesus as a prophet. No one can diminish his ministry uh, beyond, like, I mean, that's still diminishing who he is, but, I mean, still recognizing that, yes, he was a prophet, a great prophet at that, right? Why is this showing you this guy? Wow. Okay, I'm going to disable this. There's this feature of my video that, okay, this should, should help. All right, are we good? I think it's not moving again. So uh, let me do this. No. Okay. I'll just stay like this. Just focus on what's on the screen, okay? Um, yeah, so verse 6. No, let's, sorry, go back. Verse 15. 15. Let's read it together. So the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him shall you hear. He's talking about someone who is, who is a Jew, a brother like, like you, will be raised up from amongst you. And he says, according to all you desire of the Lord your God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. He's talking about someone who will come, a great prophet, that will not come with fire and brimstone. Sound like, does that ring a bell? That's Jesus. Jesus said, I came to bring life. Still, you know, I didn't come to destroy, but to save the world. The Bible says in in in, in John, I think John chapter one, uh, chapter three as well. He came not to condemn the world, 
but to save the world, right? So that's the ministry of Jesus. So this is clearly talking about Jesus. Now, follow the line of thought again. Verse 17, and the Lord spoke to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise them up from them, for them a prophet like you, from among their brethren, I will put my words in his mouth. Oh, this is powerful. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not share my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. That's talking about if you don't believe in the son of man, you're in trouble. I'll require it from him. It says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, says that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Now he gives you the metric to measure this, this idea of prophecy. He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. This is so interesting. So he's saying, in summary, if somebody comes and claims to be a prophet and says, I'm speaking in the name of the Lord, this will happen. And that doesn't happen. He said, don't be afraid of him. He has spoken presumptuously. In fact, it's worthy of death in previous, previous verses. So carry that idea back to Jesus Christ in the flesh. A great prophet preaches everywhere and he starts saying things that are very audacious. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the biggest claim you can ever make, that this God that we serve, this God who created the heavens and the earth, to get to him, you must believe me. Who? This Jesus of Nazareth, this man who grew up, you know, in the suburbs. <laughs> You have to believe him. So imagine how difficult that is. But God did something profound. Romans chapter 1 from verse 4. I want you to see this yourself. And this is very important because now this connects the dots with Philippians 2. So Romans chapter 1 from verse 3. Let's start from verse 3 actually. You know, he says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, talking about Jesus, the message that Paul was preaching is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, meaning you can trace his lineage to an earthly family. So if you want to say, whose family does he belong to? Oh, you can trace him up to David and up to Judah. So he was born of the seed of David. But then look at this language, verse 4 and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus has two identities. His, and that's, that, I'm using that, please, but I don't mean Jesus is, you know, non-binary, all, the, all these things that people are saying. Please, that's not what I mean. Because I have to be very conscious of how I, I use my words. Um, there are two ways you can recognize Jesus, according to the flesh and according to the spirit. According to the flesh, meaning by natural descent, you can trace him back to David. But when you talk about how do we know this is the son of God? How do we know he's not just the son of David? 
that he's actually the son of God. He says this is how he was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. So he declared every doubt that everything he said, you know, was true. So now you look at Deuteronomy 18 and you understand, oh, okay, he did not speak presumptuously. He said this will happen and it happened. He said I will die and rise from the dead three days after. And, I, and he did. That is proof of Jesus Christ being everything that he claimed. So everything Jesus ever said and did, you must take seriously now because he's the only one <laughs> that met the criterion of the son of God. He will die and be raised from the dead. And every prophecy he spoke will come to pass, right? Very profound. So let's go back to Philippians and see how this relates. Philippians chapter 2, from verse 9, says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So what name is this? It's talking about an authority that he laid aside for our sake. He obeyed God as a human being. And God said, wow, excellent work. Here's the name you receive. And so he gives him back all the authority that he had and says that at the name of Jesus you have to understand Jesus was an ordinary name Every, I mean even till today we have soccer players Jesus or Jesus de Navas or something you know in Spanish you just see a lot of names Jesus, Jesus you know and you're like okay what's so special about the name because even in the day of Jesus, there were more people that had the name. I hope you know the, the name Joshua means the same thing as Jesus. In fact, it was called Yeshua or Yehoshua, depending on you know what transliteration you use. And what does Yehoshua mean? Ye is where we get you, you know, the name of God, Yud He Vav He, Yahweh. That's where you get the first part of his name. Ye and Shua, which we see also in Joshua, which means to save. So God saves. That's mean of Jesus, basically. And it was a statement about what God would do. That's why it was named Jesus. But there is more to that. Like at this point, when Jesus obeyed God, God did something with his name, not the name Jesus. So it doesn't mean that if you call your child Jesus now, he's a special kid. No. That name was given an authority, an authority that this person who gave his life in obedience to God's will and for the sacrifice and salvation of all men, he says, I'm raising his name up, exalting it, that every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's verse 11, right? Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, where, where does this, what does it mean when he says every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? What Based on what I've explained to you, who sees the direct correlation now? That by the resurrection, of Jesus Christ from the dead, no one can doubt anymore. So every tongue will acknowledge, either by force or by willful submission. Now the Christian will 
openly confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. But there is coming a day when he, when he will appear in glory, the Bible says. And everyone will kneel and bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, the Jews who are still in, in doubt about the, the coming of the Messiah, they will see him. They will see him in, dis, in disguise and they say, wow, he's Lord. You know, this idea of the rapture that we have, we need to correct it according to the word of God. You know, some of us think that ah, I'm about to ruffle some feathers. Let me just be careful here. Some people think the rapture is going to happen where, you know, we're just together. And some people have used this text. Two are in the field. One is taken away. The other is left behind. Right? There's a whole series, a whole book series called Left Behind. Talking about how, you know, people are going about their everyday and, and all of a sudden, two people are in a place, one person disappeared, their clothes be left. The Mount Zion has also done the same communicated the idea and then they now paint this picture after like okay now when that happens this is the next stage three and a half years all of that stuff and i'm like okay many of us will always differ on this cartology we'll not all agree that we, we know how the end times will come but there is one thing in scripture that is always repeated everyone will see him this idea of a silent disappearance is not in the bible Look at First Thessalonians. Let me show you that. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is repeated in First Corinthians 15 as well. The, the, the eschatology of Paul is Jesus is coming and everyone is going to see him. It's not going to be, you know, a silence. You know, they say like a thief in the night. When they say Jesus is coming like a thief in the night, it means when you don't expect. It doesn't mean he will come and sneak out his people. That's metaphor. Look at this. Look at verse. This is First uh, Thessalonians 5. Sorry. That's it. 13, 13. Thank you. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are falling asleep. Let's just sorrow as others who have no hope. And this is confidence for those who are in Christ that, see, this is not the end. All right? He says, but if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of God. That means he's saying this is Jesus' words. This is not my, I'm not telling you my own view. This is this is what God has said, and this is what will happen. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, meaning there is a coming of the Lord. So, number one point, Jesus is coming. Take that point down. He says, will by no means precede those who are asleep. Meaning, the dead in Christ will rise up first. So how is it going to work? This is Paul's eschatology. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Listen to the words he used to describe it. With a what? Shout. Thank you. Shout very well. Say it. <laughs> with a shout. So, number three. Jesus is going to come out audibly. He's not going to come like a thief. And he's not the third coming. I don't even know when I can start it. You know, that a lot of people think there's a third coming. You come, steal people, and they're coming. After a third time, people that not take the mark. I'm sorry to even go there. It's just weird theology. It's not in the Bible. It's from a book and movies. And it's perpetrated lies. I'm sorry, but maybe one of these days that I'll show you from. I'm doing the doing it right now, but we'll have a time when I'll show you how we ought to expect the coming of the Lord. Now, there are a lot of things that are unclear. Get, don't get me wrong. 
for example, is it pre-trib or post-trib? All of those things that you know, people who have studied eschatology, there are many views on how it will happen, what will happen after Christ comes. But we don't need to worry about that. The question is, which one matters to us right now? Jesus is coming soon, right? How is he coming? The Bible teaches that. So let's answer it from scripture. All right. So stay with me real quick. Are you still following? Let me be sure. I haven't lost anyone. Yes, All right. All right. Let's finish this quickly. So he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And then with the voice of an archangel. Ah, I, I wouldn't say, have you heard an archangel before? But the, the Old Testament paints the picture of, of angels as being very, very noisy human. <laughs> Sorry. Very, very noisy. Like, whenever they appear, there is noise. For example, when Jesus was born and the shepherds were watching their flock, the Bible says, the, the angels appeared in numbers that could not be numbered, and they shouted, "Hail!" They shouted, right? And there was great joy. There was a lot of noise. So nobody is going to be like, "When did this happen? Oh my God, the rapture happened! When did my parents disappear?" So you know that idea. That's not what the Bible is saying. It says the dead in Christ will rise first. Oh, I forgot. Shouts. Voices, we're moving too fast, sorry. Shouts, voices, trumpets. Have you heard a trumpet? I mean, you've listened to Natalia Bass, so you heard it. And he says, and by that sound, the dead in Christ will rise first. So where, wherever the body is, whether the body is decaying in one cemetery or is in the cadaver lab, somebody's cutting it to do experiments, everything will join back. <laughs> oh my god you see when the bible talks about the resurrection of those dry bones in ezekiel that's a pictorial representation he asked ezekiel can these dry bones live he said yo no no lord and he said speak to the dry bones and they came back together hey <laughs> he's like you don't understand the power but the power that raised jesus christ from the dead says it's in you so he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. So look at the order of things. What we are waiting for right now is the appearing of Jesus. One of those who were cremated and had the ashes, the ashes will come back. They will, <laughs> they will come back. You need to realize that the Bible says immortality will swallow up mortality, meaning the body they are rising up with is not the same body they died with. But there is a sense in which that identity will not be lost. No matter what, even if they were burned with fire, the new body they will receive will be glorified. For example, look at the body of Jesus, right? The body of Jesus was, was such that when he rose up, before he was at, you know, ascended to the Father, he still had like holes. So there is still that recognition of who he was. And many times they didn't recognize him. So there was definitely a difference in what, what he looked like. We can infer that. But even more so, the, the point is, the, the resurrection of, uh, of those who are dead is going to be supernatural such that no matter where they are, they will hear the voice of God. They will hear the voice of the archangel. They will hear the shout of the Lord. And they will hear the trumpet and it will, it will do something. They will wake up. I just that. The day, you know that song? The day, the day, very nice song. Okay. 
let's round this off. I'm just I'm having fun here. Then he says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. So we who are here will be caught up together with them. What does that mean? The dead people, God is going to give them preference. And then, okay, so let's see. Ruth is asking a question. Oh, they've not been judged. So that's a good, that's a good, um, a good observation. There's, there, there's, um, there are two resurrections. Uh, the resurrection um, that we're talking about, when the dead in Christ rise, the dead that are not in Christ will rise to be judged too. So a lot of things have not happened in, in time, history, in history or in the future. So I, I don't want to go into this in detail. Let me just give you a, a good idea. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the Bible says many rose together with him. We see that in, in one of the Gospels, right? We also see that Jesus, when he rose, appeared to many. So there, there are scriptures that talk about when Jesus rose from the dead, saints rose up with him everywhere, meaning there was that resurrection that happened because of the resurrection of Jesus. And I think that aligns with when the Bible talks about he led captivity captive. And, you know, in a, in a sense, Jesus led those saints in, to heaven, in a sense. Because before that time, no one had been to heaven. The Bible says no one has. Let me just show you some of these scriptures. John 3, 13. All right, John 3, 13. And remember, everything has to be scripturally based. So ask your questions. John 3, 13. This is Jesus himself speaking. All right, look at John 3, 13. He says, he says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. So he says, only the son of man has been in heaven. No other human being. Flesh, this flesh and blood cannot enter heaven. All right, very important. That's a doctrinal position. Flesh and blood doesn't enter heaven. Anybody that's going to enter heaven needs to receive a kind of new body to enter heaven. This flesh that has been destroyed and you know corrupted by sin is not going. It's not going there. So get that. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Foundational. John one eighteen. John one eighteen. Thank you, Victoria. You're doing a great job. All right, John 1, 18, same thing. No one has seen the Father. Yeah, it says no one has seen God at any time. Ah, this is a very, very shocking statement because this is the words of John speaking by revelation. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the Father, the only one who was from heaven, that came down from heaven, is now showing him to us as he truly is. So these two verses make it clear that prior to the time of Jesus rising from the dead, no one had seen the Father and no one has been to heaven. So now we see saints rising up at the time Jesus is also raised. So it makes it begs the question, who are those people? The Bible mentions that they were saints. So Abraham, all these saints that were, did not receive the promise in Hebrews, because of what Jesus finally accomplished, Romans talks about how God, you know, 
because of what he was planning to do by the propitiation of his son, he overlooked their trespasses. Let's go there real quick. Romans 3. I hope you are taking notes. So this thing I'm teaching is normally like a five-hour teaching. I'm rushing through it just to make my points. Romans 3, go to verse 23. Is any of these things I'm saying new to anybody here? So I, I don't want to make any assumptions. This is the safest space for you to learn. So if there's uh, anything that is unclear, let me know and I'll build the case. All right. Uh, for me, it's not like is entirely new but okay. there's just this idea of like the the rapture happening in, in the twinkling of an eye right so i know yeah. every, those things will happen step by step but then it's like everything will happen step by step here but it's going to happen so fast right so uh-huh. um i'm still trying to reconcile that though like i don't want to distract us that's why i've not okay gone let's keep flowing let's keep flowing that says in the twinkle of an eye yeah, so in the twinkling of an eye can be connected with the same. We're even going to look at that scripture, by the way, it's just that we're already out of time, but I'll rush through them. Um, you said something about because PC, um, Ruth's question, she said, The dead in Christ have not been judged already, and you said yes. So, the, no, the dead in Christ, what do you mean? The dead in Christ are not have not been judged already. Yes. So okay. Good. Good. I'm. I'm getting there. And the, so just follow. Um, and the um people that rose when Jesus, the people that like the saints of old, they are talking about. Yeah. So where are they now? Where are they now? And because they've not been They're in ju- heaven. But you said so, they've not been judged. So so when we say judge, what do you mean? Judged for their works. I don't know. So, yeah. uh, so you're talking about just for the like, you know, okay, what I wanted to, why I asked that question, because usually I hear yeah. people say, um, well, it's in the scripture. So I just wanted to get the real context of that scripture. Okay. You know, I think it's in Hebrews that says um, it is appointed for man to, to, I think, die once and yeah, then after death judgment. Exactly. Yeah, so, next, so, I've so, heard... so you are on the right track okay, P, I'm with that statement. Let me, let me answer that question immediately. Okay. So it is appointed for man wants to die. Then that means the very next thing that they are expecting to have or experience is judgment. So in other words, that verse is not talking about how, um, it's, it's basically just talking about the order of things, not the immediacy of things. Okay. So you may be okay. thinking, when you look at it, you just think, oh, it's next to each other. But there's a lot of time between when someone dies and when they are risen from the raised up for them to come mm-hmm. to judgment, whether you know the judgment of um of um of their you know, there's the judgment unto condemnation and judgment unto salvation, by the way. So the, okay. the, the Christians are judged differently, all right, because of course. The, the Christian has to be judged for the rewards they will have. Not, it's not like, you know, some people have this idea that God is going to just, you know, judge you. And based on all the things you have done, even though you've trusted in Christ and put your faith in him and you get to heaven, you now say, ah, this one sin in your life, just this one thing. It just invalidates everything Christ has done for you. And that's, a, that's not a right teaching. The Christian has assurance of salvation. When you get to heaven, God is not going to be nitpicky about this little, just a little sin here and a little sin there. That was dealt with on the cross. That's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus dealt with the sin problem. So now you can 
have faith and trust in God's, you know, ability to keep you. That now unto him is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne of, you know, at the end of the day in, in um, Jude one twenty four. So the Christian is not afraid of that. But the Christian will be judged. You know, there are some words that were like hay, stubble, um, you know, straw, and those things will burn. And the only things that will really stand would be the things you did for Christ. Those were those would be the things that will be rewarded by God. Like, oh, wow, you, you preached the gospel to this person. You know, you started God's work, you obeyed it. Those things will be rewarded. There are actually rewards for that in heaven. But the Christian doesn't go through the judgments of condemnation. Like, a Christian will not get to heaven and God will say, go to hell. Do you understand mm. the difference? Yes. All right. Now, if you're asking about the when, the Bible is saying the dead in Christ will rise first. But the dead that are not in Christ, well, also there's a resurrection for them. Like, you, even if they've died, some people just think that in the realm of the spirit, when they die like this, the, the first person, they just appear and and they just see, you know, devil with a pitchfork, you know. <laughs> ah, welcome, yeah. <laughs> without judgment, without anything. No, God is going to, you know, God, the Bible says vengeance is mine. Like, there's still going to be a repayment for all the evil they have done. First of all, for not trusting Christ. And because they didn't trust in Christ, there's no payment, there's no payment left for their, you know, salvation. No payment, like the, the payments that was available, they rejected it. So they are owing. So they have to pay with their blood, with their lives. Do you understand? So now that is the judgment for the dead that are not in Christ. The Bible also speaks about that. So let's just finish this real quick. Ah, we're out of time. Oh Lord. All right, let me just end this idea. All right, I want to make sure that you don't leave here confused. Um, where are we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the, the saints. Look at verse 20, 23. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, meaning a payment, atonement by his blood, through faith to demonstrate. His righteousness. Now, this is where you need to pay attention. God is showing that he's righteous in, in, in the sacrifice of Jesus. Why does God need to show his righteous? Because someone can look at God and say, God, ah, how are you forgiving Abraham and all these people, even though they sinned and Jesus had not yet died? That's a logical question, right? Jesus died for the sins of the world, but he had not yet died. Why these people died in their sin? Or in a sinful state, even though they trusted in God. So why is God just to still keep them and call them saints and call them heroes of faith, right? This is the answer. In God's forbearance, because God knew what he was going to do. He passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. So now he's demonstrating his righteousness by not condemning them because what he promised to do with Christ, he has done. Who gets what I just said? I don't understand. Ah, okay. I'll take my time. So, because um, you said that, so, because people that was just we didn't know the quote and unquote righteous one or the people that believed. So, if he yeah, good, wait, righteous, righteous. What makes them righteous? Their faith in what God. Faith in who? Faith in what? In God, in the God, in God's promise. Beautiful, but what is Paul preaching? 
that you have to believe in Jesus. Eh. So how is God faithful? When these people did not have to know about Jesus and say, you know, say that I believe in Jesus. What happened to them? The people that actually see like it has all these actions. Did God for um forgive or look over their sins too? It, but there was no faith. Uh-huh. So it's faith, and because it's the end of that means it ends up being about faith. Because if you're saying that he didn't look over that means if it's either he's looking over their sin or his faith. It can can it be both? Is my question. Uh we can't hear P again, Abby. Yes, I think yeah. I guess I guess it's network. P okay, I was joined back, but maybe while he's trying to talk, let me just say what I think. So what he was trying to say is God um the way God God um made them righteous, or what this verse is saying is that um this verse is to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that it might be the just it might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, right? So to demonstrate that, so how did I think he's back? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to go ahead? I'm sorry. So I was on the road and my network went off. Let me just text you. Okay. Okay, but you can hear me now, right? Yes. Okay, let me just let me just try and finish my, my thoughts here. Thank you guys for staying as well, by the way. So it says, look at the text. God by his forbearance. Okay, you know what? Put it in the put the NLT. Victoria, put the NLT. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Hello. Can anyone hear me? Yes, P, I can hear you. I'll... Okay. Okay, I'm yeah, gonna put pull it up on the NLT so we can we can see that. Romans okay, Roman. three. 26. Okay, she also left. I don't know what is going on with the today. So it's talking about how God is just to make people who are supposed to be sinners right when they believe in Jesus, even though, first of all, Jesus had not yet died. So look at the flow. Look at verse, verse 26. All right. It says, for he was looking ahead. I like that, that, that replacement of the word. Instead of forbearance, he says, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. Does, is that clearer now to your seat? Okay. <laughs> he was looking ahead and including them. So he's... So, he's- Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the host of all these people who were declared to have faith. God was looking ahead because ultimately Jesus' death is what actually pays the fine. God cannot just say, get it, get you are forgiving. Somebody has to pay. Yeah. NLT. Somebody has to pay, right? So Jesus is going to pay, but Jesus has not come. So it's like saying, you know what? It's like it's like it's like credits. <laughs> that's the best way to explain it seriously it's like take go and go to you know go and buy this thing on credit you don't have the money but the assumption is that you are still going to pay that money so i'm righteous to say go and spend this money that you don't have because you will still pay it uh, 
So that's the point being communicated here. That verse 25, it says he over he, he basically overlooked the sins punished in the past by these people who trusted in God, even though Jesus had not yet come. Jesus is supposed to still shed his blood, but this sacrifice shows that God, look at it. It's on the screen now. Very good. It says, this sacrifice, okay, verse 25. Please, I hope everyone is, is gaining from this conversation. Verse 25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. Now, people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life by shedding his blood. So he's telling you how people get saved. Saved. You are made right with God when you believe that Jesus died and shed his blood as an atonement. Then he says, this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in time times past. So the reason he did not put this condemnation and this, you know, final damnation to them that actually trusted in God, even though the price had not yet been paid, was basically on credit. It's like God is looking ahead, verse 26, and including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these people in what he was going to do now. So this is the best way to summarize it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the host of saints in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward to what Christ would do, what God would do in Christ. And then we are saved by looking back at what God has done in Christ. That's the summary of this text. Is that clear so far? Is there an additional question? Okay, because what confused me was and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Because yeah. what does punishment mean? Is it eternal death? Because God clearly punished people that sinned. Yeah. So yeah, uh, okay, I get what you're saying. So the context here is talking about those who put their faith in Christ. Because this is chapter three. Guess what it's going to say in chapter four? Abraham, David. Right. So context is king. We've oh. done a study on Romans, and I, I remember teaching this extensively. So maybe you'll go back and listen to that teaching. But that's really it. The context is faith has always been the way that God makes us righteous. But faith in what? It's not not just empty faith. Faith in what? You must believe in something. And so the something you must believe in is God's plan, whether you have the clear picture as we do now, which is Jesus is the person. But all they knew was there was a, a sacrifice that must be made, and they trusted in God for that. Abraham did, yeah. Um, I I feel like this is going to continue. But what of people that did not get to, like people that didn't get what? They knew about God, but maybe they didn't just get to hear about or have been be be able to just put their faith in the promise, or just people that that knew about God, but like other nations that did not just know God in a sense. Or you that's it being punished. So, so I think we, we, we there's a foundational thing we have to agree on oh, that the foundational idea is that God is just, man is sinful, and by our natural disposition, we are heading for destruction. It's not like we are all good people and then we just have to hear one message and be confirmed to be good. That's not the gospel. The gospel is like God would be just 
okay. to, to destroy everyone. Now, he would be just as well by showing us the way, which he does. First of all, he did it many times to the prophets. Just think about it, Nineveh. Get, let me ask you a question. Do you think Nineveh was a, an Israelite country? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. And the prophets we have in scripture, they're just the, it's just the only few prophets that were recorded. Though. I hope you know they were prophets, sons of prophets. Like Elijah had sons. Yeah. Uh-huh. So God had been talking to everybody. God has been fair and just. He's not, he's not trying to hide information. He has been sending people, you know, to send his message, to let them know. God is, see, one thing you must know about God is that because he's omniscient and omnipotent, omniscient, sorry, she's correcting my English. Because he is omniscient and omnipotent, he can do anything and he's doing everything he can. Like he's making sure we are part of that plan, but God is not leaving anyone else. So that's why when it comes to like questions like, you know, this person, they, they, they were maybe mentally derailed or they have a mental issue and so they cannot comprehend the gospel or people who cannot hear, maybe they have a disability and believe the gospel must hear a message or children or all of those things. There are many questions about what happens to them since the only way to be saved is to be saved by believing in Jesus. And here's what C.S. Lewis says. I'll end it like this. You guys are really amazing for staying this long. C.S. Lewis says a very, very weird statement. He says, we know that we are saved by believing in Jesus Christ. We do not know that the only way is to believe the message. No, is no, we do not. Let me let me find that quote. I don't want to misquote him, but it was so profound because it's a conundrum. Uh yes, I found it. Listen to this quote. He says, we do know, what do we know? We do know that no person can be saved except through Christ. Do we agree? Yes. No person can be saved. There's no name given under heaven, you know, where, why, whereby anyone can be saved except the name of Jesus. But then the one we do not know, <laughs> which C.S. Lewis also struggled with in his book, Mere Christianity, is this. He says, we do not know that only those who know him can be saved by him. Huh. And, and that's where you're like, what is going on? Now, C.S. Lewis is a deep thinker. Here's what he's saying. I'll try and simplify it. Christ is still the only way. How people get saved is always going to be through Christ. So what we do not know for sure is that only those who know him can be saved by him. Meaning, and know them is to have full knowledge of him and you see why this is a very resonant idea because what happens to people who don't even have the ability to comprehend the message there has to be some 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 way for them <laughs> you get like they don't have the ability to it's not like they, i mean they are in a state where they cannot understand what what happens to them well if god is just and fair the sacrifice is still for the world. And so God is going to be just in how that happens. We don't know how, but we know that God will be just and faithful and he will do what is right. Like, that's it. But if somebody rejects the message, then that's a different ballgame. Like they heard about the goodness of Jesus 
and they choose not to believe. They chose to say they are good in themselves. They don't need salvation. We're saying rubbish. Problem. You get the point. So it will still be an eternal question, a, a debate for centuries. But the point is, you that know, what are you doing with that knowledge? And that's where it comes down to. Like God has, by his spirit, enabled you, allowed you to, to have the grasp and understanding you have. And he calls you to be a part of the mission. You obey and you do it, you know? That's what we should be worried about. Not, ah, what of those one zero point zero one percent people who cannot comprehend the gospel? Do you get what I mean? Yes, sir. Thank you so All much. Right. Yeah. And this is just, you know, a partial teaching on this. I know I opened a, a kind of worms uh, because now you'll be having a lot more questions, but I wish maybe next time we'll go, in, go deeper and I'll finish the thoughts on how... Let me just give you this assignment. Check everything the Bible says about salvation and the coming of Christ and build your theology on that. That was an awesome meal. Thank you for joining us as we studied the Word of God. If you would like to join the actual World Dinner Sessions live on Fridays, you can visit the link bmg.disha.page. It's always on Fridays, 9 p.m. West African time. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at bmg.global and see you when next it's dinner time.